We are going to continue on in our series that I started a few weeks ago, a couple weeks ago. Uh, Craig McGee was here last week, so there was kind of a break in the middle, but uh, we were talking about the last days, um, talking about end time events, and uh, our very first message was a couple weeks ago, and I discussed with you the importance of Bible prophecy, and to realize that in the midst of all this last day stuff that everybody always likes to talk about, you know, the apocalyptic things of the wrath of God upon the earth and, and what you get lost sometimes is people lose the fact that God is merciful and He's patient, not willing that anyone should be, perish, but that all would come to the knowledge of Christ and would repentance. And we know that and we've talked about that. There are some things that are very clear in Bible prophecy and there are other things that God purposefully has hidden from our knowledge. We don't know everything that is to come. We don't understand everything that will come and some things that we think are very clear uh, probably will happen a little differently than what we think at times. So this morning, I want to talk to you about a few things. I want to talk to you about, first, the time frame of what it means. Anytime you look in the Scripture, you see the last days mentioned. What is the time frame of that? What time does that mean? And then secondly, I want to talk to you about a couple of things as, as it pertains to um, end-time signs that depict our day that we live. And uh, I want to just hit on those this morning. So first and foremost, what time frame does the term last days encompass? And there's a couple different, well, three different places that it encompasses. You can follow along with us on the screen, but the first one is, is the last days are future. Anytime the Bible talks about last days or end time events, it talks about the future. In Isaiah chapter 2, it says this in verses 1 through 4, This is what Isaiah's son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple, will be established as chief among the mountains. It will be raised above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of God of Jacob. He will teach us His ways, so that we may walk in His paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations, and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. So we see this, this uh, vision, this, uh, this word, uh, Saul, he saw this um, concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the last days. And it's talking about the mountain of the Lord's temple, speaking of the Lord's temple being lifted up, that Christ is dwelling there and that people are coming into that temple and they're receiving instruction and direction. We see where there's an attitude of peace there as well. In Micah chapter 4, Micah makes another very similar uh, prediction or prophecy about end times. Verse 1, In the last days the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains. It will be raised above the hills and peoples will stream to it. Many nations will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us His ways so that we may walk in His paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between many peoples and will settle disputes for strong nations far and wide. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor, they will, nor will they train for war anymore. Every man will sit under his own vine and under his own fig tree, and no one will make them afraid, for the Lord Almighty has spoken. Both of these passages, folks, speak about future events. They were not just future events to Isaiah's day and Micah's day. They're future events for us today. Amen? True? I mean, there's, Jesus is not here physically on this earth, His temple. He's not sitting in the temple. He's not judging and uh, leading and directing and bringing peace that we're talking about. We, we aren't seeing nations uh, putting away their weapons just yet, are we? 
We're not seeing peace in that matter. So when we start looking at end time events and last days, and we see the term last days, and we're trying to encompass what time frame is he talking about in the scripture, we know that as we read these two passages, it points toward the millennial reign of Christ. When Jesus comes and he returns, he destroys the enemy with the sword of his mouth, and we know that's the battle of Armageddon. Following that, Jesus actually sets his reign up on this earth for a millennial reign period, a thousand years. We'll talk about this in weeks to come more in depth. But the fact of the matter is, is he comes and he establishes his kingdom on earth. And it's a kingdom on this earth for 1,000 years that will take place. And during that time, we will see the things that were just mentioned in this scripture. So as it pertains to last days, what time does this encompass? The last days can be as far down the road, folks, as the end of the thousand year millennial reign of Christ. The last days, when people start talking about the last days or the end times, they think, oh, that's when God pours out his wrath, or oh, that's, that's today because we're expecting him to come. Listen, the last days are literally the last days of this earth. The sun comes up, the sun goes down. Jesus is here on this planet during the millennial reign of Christ, and it is still the last days. Until uh, the, the great white throne judgment, until this earth is burned up and, and disappears from the face of our God, is it the last days. So that's the farthest reaching term of the last days. The last days are also in our past. Let's look at it. Hebrews chapter 1. I'm doing a lot of scripture this morning, so it's probably easiest for you to follow along on the screen. But Hebrews chapter 1, in the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. So the writer of Hebrews also uses a term about the last days, but he's pointing out that the time which he lived when he wrote it was the last days. He marks the significance of the fact that the time that he lived was the last days, beginning with the gospel given by Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ walked this earth, he spoke the gospel, he lived the gospel, he lived, he died, he rose again. At the following of that time, he was there revealing God to them with his own lips. They said, here in these last days. Now why would the writer of Hebrews use a term saying these last days that he heard Jesus with his own lips talk about these things. The fact of the matter, folks, is, is because they knew chronologically in a prophetic time frame that the next thing to come after the Messiah was revealed is that he would come and establish his kingdom on earth. So they looked at it and they said, the Messiah is coming. He, Jesus could return at any moment. Remember Jesus told him, he said, here for a little while you'll see me no more and then you'll see me again. And he began to talk about very soon and, and soon and a little while and using all these types of terms about his return. Those after Jesus had been on this earth, quickly they, they look around and they go, hey, he could come back any minute. So the writer of Hebrews is saying, because Jesus was here, because he has proven himself to be the Messiah, he has been here and now these are the last days. Folks, he, this was 2,000 years ago. Amen. Last days started 2,000 years ago. I've always made clear that in the beginning God created everything and in the end he will create again. There's going to be a new heavens. There's going to be a new earth. He is the alpha. He is the omega. Amen. He's the beginning and the end. We know that's who he is. But as it pertains to the last days, it began with Christ and it's going to end with Christ. It began with Christ here on this earth. The last days are established and it ends with Jesus through the millennial reign of his kingdom here on this earth until the great white throne judgment. So the last days began when Christ was on this earth 
he shared the gospel and the church was established. In Acts chapter 2, there's another proof to this in Scripture where Peter makes a reference to Joel's prophecy following the day of Pentecost. Acts chapter 2, verse 16. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The prophet Joel made this prophecy and spoke about end-time events, and yet Peter steps up and he says, this is fulfilled today. Now what part of it was fulfilled at that time? In Acts chapter 2, obviously we know it was the day of Pentecost. The church was established. God poured His Spirit out upon His people, and they, the, the 3,000 were saved that day, and God did a work in them. And the fact of the matter is, as Peter said, that today this is fulfilled. This is fulfilled in your presence, that this is what was spoken of by Joel. In, when did, was it supposed to happen? In the last days. It was supposed to happen in the last days that God would pour out His Spirit on all people. On a side note, folks, I'll say this. You don't hear this preached very much when you talk about end-time events because it's always all about doom and gloom, okay? It's always about God's wrath and blood and demons and explosions and earthquakes because that's what everybody's into, I guess. I don't know. But here's, here's a really cool thought. Do you know that the fact that God poured His Spirit out on His church is proof that it's the last days? So every time somebody gets saved, every time somebody gives their life to Christ, every time somebody gets filled with the Spirit, every time somebody gets empowered to do the work of the ministry, it is a sign that it is the last days. Let that soak in for a second. Did Peter not just say that? Did Joel not talk about it? The mentality or the character of the church age, as Joel was talking about it, is that God would pour His Spirit out on all flesh. And we are living in a time period where God is being patient and He's allowing time for work. He's allowing time for harvest. He's allowing time that the loss would be reached with the gospel. And Joel didn't put a time frame on the last days. He just talked about what Peter explains and what took place. He talks about it. But what we see happening here is that Peter says, this is fulfilled. He says, this is what's happened. People have been filled with the Spirit. He's pouring out His Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams and all these things. And he says, all this stuff's going to happen. Then it jumps right to very apocalyptic type things. You know, the moon turning to blood and all this stuff. There's a really vast time frame in there, folks. And that first part of it, starting 2,000 years ago when the church was established, until today, there has not been an amen in the book of Acts. The church was established. We see all through the book of Acts, it goes forth in power. Lives are changed. People's bodies are healed. The people's lives are saved. Their souls are saved. We see demons cast out. All this powerful stuff throughout the book of Acts. You don't ever see an amen saying it's over. Why is that? Because for 2,000 years, a little over 2,000 years, we've been living in this dispensation of God's mercy and grace and patience. Allowing people to come to Christ. And the fact is, is that it started 2,000 years ago. Today we're still living in it. So when we talk about the last days, don't ever think that the last days are tomorrow or that they started 30 years ago or 20 years ago. They started 2,000 years ago. 
Joel jumps from the day of Pentecost to a time where God's judgment is poured out. And folks, I'm going to tell you this right now. Here's where we're living. We're living somewhere between God's grace and God's judgment. We're living at the establishment of the church and we're waiting to see the wrath of God be poured out upon this earth for its sin. You say, why are you saying this? Because not only is the last days a reference to future events, and not only is the last days a reference to past events, it's also a reference to current events. This time we're living is the church age. And we're patiently waiting to see what God will do. We're patiently waiting to see who will surrender themselves to Him. God is patient. You and I are a part of this. You and I are involved in the last days today. And I want to ask you a question. Do you want to be a church that's a last days church? You say, what is a last days church? Open the book of Acts and read it. A last days church started on the day of Pentecost. A last days church left that place, went out and reached the lost, and lives were changed. And today we're in this place because somebody had some, some uh, wherewithal to continue to serve and seek the Lord and to carry on this heritage that the Lord established when He was on this earth. I want to be a church that's full of the Spirit of God, a church empowered to see and experience the miraculous, a church that is about her Father's business when He returns. You say, Pastor, I hear you, I understand. I understand that this is talking about future events and past events and current events, but where are we? Where are we now on this whole scale? Where are we now in this, this chronological order of end-time events? Where are we in this day and age? 2013, where does it fall in that big gap where there was no time frame? Well, there's some things that I could share with you. There's some stuff that I've shared before that I'm not going to. There, the reason is, is there's all kinds of Bible prophecy that talks about it, and folks, we just don't have time to hit on all of it. There's no way... we. We could be teaching this for six years. I'm not going to do that. Most people will refer to Matthew chapter 24 and they'll go through all these things where it talks about wars, rumors of wars, and it goes on down and it talks about the fact that uh, um, there's going to be many false Christs. It talks about uh, earthquakes in diverse places and all these things. And I've used that before. And if you want to hear teaching on that, go back a couple of years, 2011, on the website and go to... Um, uh, dealing with reality, part three, week three, whatever. I talk about a lot of the future time, end time events in chapter 24 of Matthew. I'm not going to deal with that. And you say, why? Because there are a lot of discussions between different denominations, different people uh, who are believers who will argue and say that a, an, an eschatological interpretation of that passage is wrong. Why is that wrong? Because they say it's, it's dealing with an issue that's already happened to Israel that it has to do with what took place in 70 AD when the temple was destroyed and yada, 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 yada. And there's arguments. They say, well, there's always been wars and rumors of wars, Pastor, and there always will be. So how can you say there's going to be wars and rumors of wars? Well, that's always a sign. So how can you say that today there's any more wars and rumors of wars? I have a lot of documentation facts that works that tells you why, but I'm not going to go into that today. The other one is earthquakes. How can you say earthquakes? There's, there's not an increase in earthquakes. There's no change in the earth's surface. There's no, and they go through all this stuff and argue and say that those are not legitimate signs. So what I'm going to do today is I'm going to focus on two that cannot be argued. Okay? Can I focus on two? Everybody say two. <laughs> you're still awake. Good. Some of you are waking up and saying, are the announcements over or not? Where's the announcements? 
So this morning I want to focus on two things. We can discern where we're at in this last day's time frame by looking at the fact that Israel was reborn as a nation in 1948. This is key. It cannot be denied. You can't say that didn't happen. You can't say that's pulling from different scientific researches or anything else, or your numbers are wrong. You can't. Israel was reestablished as a nation miraculously in 1948. Hosea chapter 3 says this in verses 4 and 5, For the Israelites will live for many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred stones, without ephod or idol. Afterwards, the Israelites will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They will come trembling to the Lord and to His blessings in the last days. The term the last days is very important to us. It's not talking about just some other uh, time where they're, they're in exile to Babylon or in exile to Egypt or anywhere else. It's talking about the last days. It's talking about post-church establishment. It's talking about following Christ. It's those last days Well, this is making a reference to the fact that they will come back. They will live without prince, without sacrifice or sacred stones. Folks, we have known and know that Israel lived without that for a very long time. They've not had a king. They've not had a place of worship. They've not had sacrifice. They've not had any of these things. Why? Because in 70 AD, they were destroyed. The, the temple was destroyed. Folks, they've been dispersed all around the world for a long time. Israel was a nation that was not a nation until 1948. Israel was a nation that was dispersed and, 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 and all over the place. But I want to make something clear. If you look at this, it says the Israelites lived for many days without king, prince, or without sacrifice, sacred stones, without ephod or idol. We know that's happened, all right? That is, that is last day's past. That's already happened. Afterwards, the Israelites will return. Has that happened? 1948, and is still happening. It's still happening. And seek the Lord their God. Has that happened? Not totally yet. This is a reference to Israel as a nation realizing that Messiah, Jesus Christ, is the Messiah that they were looking for. That He is the Jewish Messiah. That will not happen, folks, until toward the end of the seven-year tribulation period when the Antichrist is ruling and reigning. So here's where we're at. We're somewhere after Israel is returning in the word and before they seek His face. The fact that Israel is a nation tells me this. We're very close. We're very close. Israel was established as a nation and we're living somewhere between uh, return and. Israel's return to a nation fulfills specific Bible prophecies concerning an international regathering of the Jews before the tribulation period. This regathering was predicted to take place after centuries of exile in various nations around the world. As Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 24 through 28 says, For I will take you out of the nations, plural. I will gather you from all the countries, plural, and bring you back into your own land. 
I will sprinkle, sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. You will live in the land I gave your forefathers. You will be my people and I will be your God. Now right here we have again, we can look at the same chronological order of prophecy. We see it right here in verse 24. I will take you out of the nations. Again, plural. It wasn't just speaking of Babylon. People say, Pastor, this is a prophecy of them coming back from Babylon. Or wherever. No, folks, it may be a portion of that about this, but when it starts speaking plurally or nations from around the world, we know and understand that he is talking about gathering them together. We see here that they're going to be brought back into your own land. And then verse 25, I will sprinkle, clean, sprinkle you clean with water. Is Israel a believing nation? Totally. Is the nation saying that Jesus Christ is our Messiah? No. So where are we again? We're somewhere between them returning and the fact that they are going to name Christ as their Messiah. Which tells us again, we're very, very close to the return of Jesus Christ. So we see this similar prophecy that Hosea had, and we know that Christ's return is very, very near. And he's speaking about a future time because there's a promise for them being cleansed, and it is not a current thing. And he also even says he's going to put a spirit in them, put his spirit in them, and we know that that can only happen following Jesus Christ's ascension to the Father. So this gathering was made official, folks, in 1948. And Israel became a nation again. In May 1948, the nation's population was 806,000 people. But by the end of 2005, it was nearly 7 million people and 5.6 million of those are Jews. And the number is growing. You say, Pastor, what's your point? Our Lord is gathering His people back to their place. Our Lord is gathering His people and He's preparing this world to see the true Messiah. In Ezekiel 37, right after Ezekiel 36, where we just talked about this return, verses 11 and 12, we see this out of the, the story of the Valley of Dry Bones. Then He said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They say our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. We are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, this is what the Sovereign Lord says, O my people, I am going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. Before our very eyes, this is happening today. You say, Pastor, I understand, but why is this such a big deal? What is the purpose of it? I mean, why, why, why is this so urgent for us right now? No one would have ever imagined in 1940 what was going to happen in 1948. It was quick. It took place quickly. But most importantly, there are a few Bible prophecies concerning the end-time events during the tribulation period that requires Israel being a nation. Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, speaking of the Antichrist, He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. In the middle of the seven, He will put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on a wing of the temple, He will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on Him. Now, this is a direct reference speaking of the Antichrist. This is the coming world dictator that's going to come in by peace. We'll talk about him in a few weeks. But he's going to come in by peace and he's going to establish himself not only as a world ruler, but also as Christ himself. He's going to set himself up as God. And there's some things here, there's a couple things here that are very important about this prophecy. That we know that there's going to be a peace treaty signed by him. 
Okay? He's going to sign a peace treaty with Israel. And you say, Pastor Bob, what's the big deal? What's this have to do with Israel being a nation? You don't sign peace treaties with nations that aren't nations. Right? If you're a nation that's dispersed all over the world, who are you going to find to come uh, and sign a peace treaty with you? Or even furthermore, why would you care to sign a peace treaty with somebody that has no military, has no strength, has no organization, no government, no power, no backing? You have to be a nation before somebody can sign a peace treaty with you. 1948, they became a nation. And today they're growing. And today they've got the most advanced army in the world, one of the most advanced armies in the world with the most uh, intelligence in the world. Folks, people look at them and want to have peace, even though they hate them. The nations around them despise them. And they'll do anything they can to work out peace with them. Folks, we don't understand how near we are to the second coming of Christ. You say, why is that? Because I'm not going to go into it now, but if you read Daniel, he, he breaks down the fact there's four different possible regions that the Antichrist will come out of. There's four horns that are raised up, and out of those will be one little horn with a big, with a little big mouth making big boasts. And no, it's not me. And out of those four regions, if you do the research and you look at those four regions, you'll see that all four of those regions are in political unrest today, and they've either ousted their leaders, or they're trying to oust their leaders, or in civil war. Or they've had economic failure. All four of those regions today, folks, are just waiting for one person to step up and to get in place that's charismatic, that lies just right at the just right time and has got demonic influence to get some people to follow him so that he can lead those nations who hate Israel, who surround Israel, to get into a peace treaty with them. That's exactly what's going to happen next. Secondly, the reason it's important that Israel was a nation is that it says about the Antichrist in Daniel 9, it says that he put an end to sacrifice and offering. Well, we know that Israel does not have a temple currently. And obviously, in the tribulation period, there's going to be a temple built. Most likely, that temple will be started to be built after this peace treaty is signed. Because how many of us know what's on the temple grounds right now? A mosque, Dome of the Rock, a Muslim place of worship. And I've heard people say, I, don't, I have not seen the plans, nobody's called and asked my permission to look at them or anything else. I've, they've not said, hey Bob, could you come check these out? Uh, but I've heard there are plans made in a proposition of peace to be able to build a Jewish temple right next to the Dome of the Rock. And more than likely that's going to take place following uh, this peace treaty signed by this Antichrist and Israel, who is a nation at the time. You say, why is it important that you say this? Because it says that he stops the offerings and he stops the sacrifice. Folks, there is no sacrifice and offering this morning in Israel because there's no temple to do it. And there would be no temple except Israel's a nation again. You don't build a temple for people that are scattered all over the world. You build a temple when there's over 5 million Jews in an area and start to demand it's time for us to build a temple and to restart the sacrifice and to worship our God and to start following the Mosaic Law again. And they start demanding for this temple to be built. And I can see it, folks, through this peace treaty. They're saying, okay, here's how we found peace. We'll do this. We'll give this much. If we let you build this temple, will you be in part with this and this for us? And it's all agreed upon. And now they build the temple again. It would never happen if Israel was not a nation. One more thing, and then I'll move on to the second one. 
Others have used a reference in Matthew 24 about the fig tree as a prophecy of Israel's becoming a nation. And it's one thing that I've, I've always been a little bit hesitant to do because it seems like a little bit of a stretch and you're pulling things out of context a little bit. But as you do a further study and the reality of the fact that, that Israel is a nation, it's pretty intriguing. Matthew 24, verses 32 and 33. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see all these things, you know that it is near right at the door. Now, Jesus said this to his disciples concerning all those things that I talked about. Wars, rumors of wars, earthquakes, uh, pestilence, disease. You got issues with uh, economic failure, all this kind of stuff that's implied through there. You got false prophets, false teachers and things of that nature. And then it goes on and it says, as soon as you see all these things, it's as easy to understand that it's very near and very quick to happen, just as easy as it is to look at a fig tree and see its sprouts coming out and you say, oh, it's summertime. We all understand it's fall because it starts at four something today, right? No, because the leaves start turning. Leaves start changing. It starts getting cooler outside. So that's what we understand. That's what Jesus was really saying, I think, is about the fact that uh, uh, when you see all these happening, you can know that it's very near. However, if you look in Luke 13, and there's a few other places where Jesus refers to a uh, fig tree as an example of the nation of Israel, he says this in Luke 13, verses 6 through 9. He told this parable, a man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and when he went to look for fruit on it, but did not find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard for three years, now I have been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? Sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year and I'll dig around it and fertilize it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. It's an obvious parable against the nation of Israel because she had not produced fruit for the Lord, who was the owner of the vineyard, Jesus, who had a three-year ministry on this earth, right? And he, he looked for fruit and looked for fruit. He dug around and he, he fertilized and did the work that he could. And when they rejected him, they were what? They were cut off. Not only spiritually, but also as a nation. And that's what happened and that's what took place. When you look at that and you realize there's a few places where Jesus talked about the fig tree and referred to it as, as, as Israel in, in that way, verse 24 shows this in a fig tree. He says, look, you see something, uh, chapter 24 of Matthew, he says, you see a tree that is tender, it's young, and it's sprouting. And when this takes place, know that it's very near, even at the door. When you start pulling it from other places and you look at it that way, that's pretty intriguing, isn't it? Because even though maybe that wasn't the original context of that passage, there's no doubt based on Old, Old Testament passages, other scripture in the day and age that we live today, that Israel being a nation is a 100% sign that the coming of Jesus Christ is very, very, very near. Second thing, quickly. The other thing is a clear and indisputable sign is the fact that we are living in the last days. It's a moral decline of our culture in apostasy. Moral decline and apostasy. You say, Pastor, there's always been moral decline. Matthew 24 says this, 12 and 13, Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But he who stands firm to the end will be saved. You start talking about morality in our culture today, you're going to get a lot of different answers. And if I asked people in our culture that the decline of our morality in our culture today, they would look at me like I had snakes coming out of my head. 
And they would say, you're crazy. It, what are you talking about? Our culture is better than it ever has been. We've got better doctors. We've got better science. We've got better this and this and that. I'm not talking about human advancement. I'm talking about morality. I'm talking about obedience to God's Word. I'm talking about truth versus lies. 1 Timothy 4, Paul says this to Timothy, the Spirit clearly says that in later times some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. This word apostasy that I just shared with you is very important because it comes from the Greek word apostasia, which means a falling away or a turning away from the truth. That means people that have heard it People that have an understanding of it turn away from it. Jesus said in the last days that the love of most will grow cold. Those who know, those who have understood. Now, hear me out. I'm talking about people that profess themselves as Christians and don't live it. I'm not talking about true believers. I'm not talking, listen, you are called the elect in Scripture if you know Christ and you serve Him and follow Him every day of your life. And the elect are not deceived anywhere that I've seen. Okay? I'm talking about those that play church. I'm talking about those that have a form of religion but don't know Christ. I'm talking about people that walk in and out of the doors every Sunday and their lives are never impacted. They're never different. There's never a desire to obey anything. They come and endure Pastor Bob for 45 minutes just so they can say, Oh, that was awful. I've done my service a sacrifice for the week. That's not salvation, my friends. These people have heard the truth and they've turned away and they believe doctrines of demons. They've heard deceptions, they've heard lies, and they, 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 they embrace lies and they pursue other things. This attitude of turning away is all through the Scripture. Judas Iscariot betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. He had experienced the presence of God, he had walked with Jesus, he had, he had seen and done miracles himself, and he turned away from Him for money or a personal agenda. Hymenius and Alexander were mentioned by Paul in 1 Timothy as having shipwrecked their faith through blasphemy. Demas was mentioned in, in 2 Timothy 4, turned away because he loved this present world more than the world to come. The insinuation is that he forfeited his soul to gain this world. The enemy will use all kinds of trickery and lies and enticements for us to turn away and to disobey God and His Scripture. Temptation, wealth, lust, love for this world. It will turn us away from God. A sign of these last days, folks, is that man will follow deceiving spirits according to Scripture. You want to hear the most sickening thing out of all of it? It's coming from the pulpits of our churches. Come back some other week. I'll be happy and funny and I'll tell a lot of jokes and we'll have a good time. This is the, one of the most sickening things about Bible prophecy I think I've ever seen in my life is when pulpits of men that are supposed to be godly men will get up and teach a compromised doctrine to make people happy. Amen. Deceiving spirits. Do you realize how many cults and false religions have come out of Christianity? They come out because people have agendas. And some people see angels. An angel appeared to me, Pastor. I'm going to say something that probably get me in trouble when this goes on the internet, but I don't even really stink and care. Mormonism. It's a cult. Why is it a cult? Because it takes Christian truth 
twists it, takes authority and power from Jesus Christ. He's not the Son of God. He is not deity. He is not, folks, when they start taking that and they turn him into something other than God, it becomes a cult. I don't care how nice they are. I don't care how beautiful they are. I don't care how great their teachings are. Listen, I've been to Utah. I worked out in Utah for a month one year, and I'm going to tell you what, you're not going to meet a nicer bunch of people. You talk about pleasant, some, some level of morality, and, and in some ways they put us all to shame, and it's sad. That's the depth of the deception. The depth of the, of the deception is the fact that they don't know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior because He's not their God. He's not their God. And you say, Pastor, how can you dare say that? I'm frustrated because our culture tells us that we have to embrace it as Christianity. It's not. They've got their own book, man. When you write your own book, it's a cult. When you take Scripture and you write your own book, it's a cult. It's not. You say, why would you say that? Because it, he was, Joseph Smith established this religion based off of a vision called Moroni. And I've always said, take the eye off the end of the name of the angel. Moron. <laughs> Here's the problem. When you have an angel appear to people and the angel starts telling you, here's something else. And the angel tells you that Jesus Christ is not deity. There's a problem. That's called people following deceiving spirits. And somebody takes that and they establish a religion based off of a deceiving spirit revelation. You say, Pastor, how can you say that's demonic? I'm telling you it's demonic because it is. You say, how can you say it's demonic when it's not? Because Paul said, if I myself or anybody else or even an angel from heaven appears to you and teaches you any other gospel than the one you have heard, let him be forever condemned. And the word there in the Greek is anatema, which means let them be damned to hell for all eternity. And any angel that would come and say that is not an angel from God. It is a demonic angel. Well, pastor, Joseph Smith said it was beautiful. Of course it was. It's a fallen angel. The only demons that look evil and wicked are the ones you see in Hollywood. Satan himself poses as what? An angel of what? No, he has big teeth and things and a pointed tail and horns. No, he doesn't. He is an angel of light. He opposes as an angel of light. But folks, he, it's a demonic oppression. It's a deceitful spirit. Tell me we're not living in the last days when this is a growing religion and now there's a huge movement of our world for Christianity to embrace it as though it's not a cult. It is a cult. I don't hate the people. I wish they would come to knowledge and faith of Christ. We have distant family members that are, that are Mormon and we've talked to them about their faith. Folks, listen to me. This is a sign of the end times. What's another one? Islam. They say they worship our God. They say they're worshiping the same God. But folks, when an angel appears to Muhammad and starts telling him other things other than what Jesus Christ has done, and Jesus Christ is just a knowledgeable teacher and a prophet in some form, but not really deity in Christ, it is not the same God. We have, in our culture today, people following deceiving spirits. And morality is low because people are pursuing whatever it is that they want. There is so much deception in our world that it is de there's, there's, it's just causing people to move further and further away from Christ. That's only two. I could go on and on and on with more and more. I think we get the picture. The sad thing is, is that when people are not just receiving false teaching from cults, 
but they're also receiving false teaching from ministers. 2 Timothy chapter 4. Come back next week and we'll be happy. We'll talk about the rapture of the church. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. Here's, here's the scary part about the day in which we live. False teachings are not just coming from cults. They're coming from pulpits. The morality of our culture is low because the pulpit is weak. And I'm going to say this with as much love as I can, but I will say this, there are some, and I don't mean all, there are some, and I won't say most because it's not most, but there are some who are willing to take, there's some that are little, little preachers on big platforms that make big boasts about things and will do and say anything to get people to come in the doors of their church and to help their budget grow and to help them have their multi-million dollar house and their several thousand dollar suits and their multi-million dollar collection of cars and, and their re re retirement properties and vacation homes and everything else. They'll say and compromise absolutely anything. They no longer teach a clear gospel where sin is sin and where man is in need of more than self-help. Folks, man's moral situation needs more than five steps of warm, fuzzy, stroke your ego messages. I'm not going to stand here and tell you I'm perfect. I'm far from it. Anybody that really knows me knows I'm a long way from perfect. I need Jesus Christ. I need Jesus Christ, and without Christ, I am lost. That is the gospel message. It's not a bunch of psychological self-help mumbo-jumbo. You're a good person. You're a great person. You're just a great person. I look in the Scripture, I don't see that. I see for all of sin and fallen short of the glory of God. I see where Paul makes clear that there's not one good, not one of us. And yet we have a culture where people love to gather around them. Pastors, they're going to just be so positive. God bless you. You're just so perfect and warm and fuzzy. And, oh, you're just oozing with the blessing of God. Everything in your life, you're just, you're just grand. and You're just perfect and wonderful. Listen to me, folks. All that type of teaching does is it builds up self. And when you get self built up, you've got a people that are full of pride. And when you've got people that are full of pride, they have no intention of bowing their knee to Jesus Christ. We need more than the power of positive thinking. These lies fill seats, they sell books, and they get the preacher rich, but they send people to hell. The message of cross is not popular. It's not a popular message today. It's becoming weak because men of God are not willing to be the prophets like Jeremiah or Elijah or be a Paul or others who will stand up and say enough is enough. As long as mankind is happy with being ignorant of the truth, further prophecy will be fulfilled in his character. And you say, what are you talking about? 2 Timothy 3. Paul says this, mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves. Of course they are. That's what they get from the pulpit. Oh, you're just great. Yeah, you don't need to repent of nothing. Yeah, you're just, oh, you're going to be, you know what? You just are, you're a really good person. You're going to be just fine. Listen, man, the moral situation and condition of man's heart is wickedness. 
And the only way to get past that is not for somebody to tell me how good I am. Right now, as I say this, people are offended. I can't believe you're telling me that I'm a bad person. I'm not telling you you're a bad person. I'm telling you you're lost without Jesus Christ. If you've made Him the Lord of your life, you're not a bad person. You're a sinful person saved by grace. Hallelujah. If you're offended by that, I'm sorry. It's the truth of the gospel. We need more than somebody just telling me how wonderful I am. I need to know my condition. If I had a cancer, I don't want to go to a doctor and have him look at me and say, Pastor, you know what? You're fine. Don't worry about it. You're going to be fine. Take it out of me. Rip it out of me. Take it out. That's why we come to Christ. We come to Christ because of our wickedness. It says they're going to be lovers of themselves, lovers of money. Do we see it? Yes, of course. That's all we teach in our culture today. Your best life now. I'm sorry, Paul looked in and saw our time and he said it was terrible. It's a terrible time to live. Your best life now. Listen, I don't, I'm not worried about my best life. You want to know what your best life now is, folks? You want to know what your best life? I'll tell you what your best life now is. Right now you're offended. I can't believe you brought up his book. I don't care if I bring up his book. You want to know what your best life now is? Your best life now is that you repent of your sin you get saved by Jesus Christ. That's your best life. You want a good life? That's a good life. Doesn't mean everything's going to be perfect. Doesn't mean your job's going to go well. Doesn't mean everything in your life, everything's going to be rosy and happy and perfect. It just means you're saved by grace. And that when this life is over, you're going to walk into eternity where true perfection is. And that's your best life. Only through Jesus Christ. Lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, have nothing to do with them. You say, what are you talking about, Pastor? All of this stuff that's been on here, and as Devin and Alyssa come, we're going to close, but all this stuff that I just read to you, there's a mentality in our church today that will compromise anything to keep people happy. You stay just like all this stuff is that I just read to you. And the church, the pushes in the church is that the church is irrelevant, it's outdated, that we're harsh, we're rude, we're mean, we're angry, and so we got to embrace all these other lies of our culture, and if we don't do that, then we're going to be labeled as something else. I'm going to tell you what, if you live your life to make everybody happy, you're going to fail. And I don't just mean fail in following Christ, I mean fail, period, because you can't make everybody happy. If you try to compromise everything to make somebody happy, eventually you're going to run into somebody that doesn't agree with what you just compromised with before. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm not going to compromise the Word of God. Why? Because I'm not going to make people happy. I had somebody in my office this week, nobody from our church, nobody you even know, come into my office and start arguing with me about a situation and telling me that how it's okay to lie. Folks, it's not okay to lie. I don't care what you say. I don't care what you do, but it makes people happy. If I lie to them, if we lie, then it will bring peace. If we lie, it will bring a temporary peace. Temporary. And I'm not going to make some kind of an adjustment to life so that I can make a couple people happy. I would rather... I would rather do the right thing and glorify God and make a few people unhappy with me as I glorify God than to dishonor God and try to make a few people around me happy and still not accomplish making everybody happy. There's either truth or there's not truth. And in these last days, Israel as a nation, in our culture, in, our, in, in, in the church, and, and I don't mean the bride of Christ, I'm talking, I'm talking about organizations are willing to compromise everything to make a few people happy. 
They're afraid of lawsuits. They're afraid of this. They're afraid of that. They're afraid of this. Listen, I'm afraid of my God. I fear Him. I fear Him. And how are we going to be a church, a last day's church in the last days? We're going to be a church that does not compromise. We will love everyone. You say, Pastor, there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of love in your voice right now. I've said it a thousand times. I don't care who you are, what you've done. I will love you. I've been to jails. I've been to hospitals. I've visited with people across tables that you would not even associate yourself with. I love all of them. I want them all to come to Christ. But I'm not going to change and lower the standards that God set in His Word. It's not my place. So what's this bring us to today? It brings us to the fact that these are just two signs. There's innumerable, many, many, many more that are fulfilled in our culture today saying that the return of Christ is imminent and near. Are things going to get worse? I believe they probably will get a little bit worse before then. But that doesn't mean sit back and wait, okay? You need to get right. You need to get right with Jesus. The whole thing about this whole Bible prophecy thing, two things, is one that God gives us Bible prophecy so that there's hope to the believer and He gives us Bible prophecy so that the lost will repent of their sin and receive the same hope the believer has. Stand with me this morning.